going to stand because the word of God is so powerful and we want to honor the word. So we're reading from Luke chapter 9 and it's from verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep, but since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Just as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them. Wow. And they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, this is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent. And in those days told no one any of the things that they had seen. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Jesus. It's so funny, you look like we're doing church in Africa, like, or South America or Asia or something. Have you seen it? And it if you see pictures in the church, there, everybody's fanning themselves. <laughs> so that's good. Maybe that's a prophetic picture of what's coming. Um, I'm completely bamboozled and, uh, <laughs> today. Um, we were slightly hijacked uh, by... Um, uh, celebrating 10 years and I do just want to say thank you for some of the kind words um, but most of all just want to thank God for his kindness to us uh, 10 years ago when we walked in there were two teenagers here um, I think and they were from the same family um, we had two services on a Sunday and then one once a month um, Anthony Ray, some of you will know as our church warden, um, 10 years ago, I think he was about 60, and it felt like maybe, if, I think he's, he's pretty much there, okay. it just felt like we walked in, and apart from him and from Pippa, who I can see, it felt like we were much at the younger end, um, and bringing our babies, um, Finn was nine at the time, down to Eva, who was one and a half, and and I think I just want to just say thank you to the Lord for his kindness to us, uh, for being faithful when we've made mistakes or um, tripped over ourselves or just sinned against the Lord and one another. Um, I just want to just thank God for his faithfulness. Um, we've, had, we've had some glorious highs uh, and he's been faithful in the lows. Um, and I also just want to say thank you to you all. Some of you weren't in the church, most of you weren't in the church 10 years ago. Um, but you've been um, just incredible to serve the Lord with. And Lou and I often say that if we didn't have the roles we had, we would come to this church. Ten years ago, uh, a month after we started, um, one of the elder statesmen of the parish, um, member of the church, came and requested that I didn't put my hands up in worship. 
and I didn't sway from side to side because he found it extremely intimidating and off-putting. Um, and, and he's in glory now, so I dread to think what he'd think about what we just did. <laughs> so I'm just going to stand up here, actually, so I can see you all at the back. Um, and, um, and we talked, and I said, listen, I will never force you to put your hands up in worship. I will never pressure you to do anything that you don't want to do. But please don't pressure me to not do what I feel is right to do. And we made our peace and he was gracious. And that was just one small example of the graciousness and kindness that we've experienced from God's people in this place. And you're part of that. So thank you for your prayers and and kindness and, and just being passionate and full on for the Lord. And Lord, as we just pick up your word, I... I feel completely inadequate to handle the gravity of this passage. And I just pray, Holy Spirit, would you come and teach us? Would you come and speak to our hearts? And I pray that what I've been considering, Lord, let that be forgotten. Would you just come and speak to your church right now? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I want to talk to you for a few moments about the glory of God, which is at the heart of this passage today, but the glory of God in the United Kingdom. The glory of God in the United Kingdom. And if that sounds like a sort of grandiose title, uh, I want to just hit three questions, which particularly if you're new or settling in amongst us, Um, I've just been on my mind. What I'm not going to do is go line by line expositionally through today's passage, but I want to use it as a prophetic picture and I want to look at three questions. Number one is, who are we as God's people in this place? Who are we? Secondly, where are we? And thirdly, what do we sense the Lord is saying to us at this time? Who are we? Where are we? And what do we sense the Lord saying to us at this time? Uh, But the Bible question I just want to ask for a minute is, why is this passage even in there? What is the Mount of Transfiguration for? Nothing's by accident in Scripture. So what was God's purposes in this weird story? awesome story and quite hilarious uh, story. Um, So Jesus goes up the mountain. He takes just three of his disciples. It says that 29, uh, they went up to pray and while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. They didn't get a new Jesus, but he was transfigured transformed before their eyes he just shone his face was changed and he was dazzling white and we see this aspect of Jesus right at the end of scripture don't we in the book of revelation we see him revealed in his glory as he's being revealed here and then Moses and Elijah pop up and all the clever people will have all sorts of theories about why And Moses really is like the guy who spoke face-to-face with God and got the law. So people think that Moses represents all the law, uh, everything post-Moses in the way that Israel was meant to be ordered to be God's people and to worship God. Moses is representing all of that. And then Elijah was commonly known as the greatest of all the prophets. So you may have your favorites, But Elijah was meant to be the greatest and he was known as the greatest because he was the the one who saw down 400 false prophets and that mighty battle and confrontation on Mount Carmel. And he exposed them and he changed the heart of the nation through his obedience to the Lord and his calling back of Israel and their hearts to be faithful to the Lord. Uh, And so, um, you know, it's kind of like, why are these guys... 
why are these guys appearing now? And it's, I'll offer some thoughts in a moment. But they talk with Jesus of his departure, verse 31, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So it's just a weird passage, isn't it? Moses and Elijah suddenly appear. And then they're speaking to him, what about his exit? You know, about the types of clouds that he'll go on or, or whatever. Um, and what we kind of miss is that he's talking about his departure. And in the original language, the word departure, translated in the original language, is exodus. He's talking about his exodus at Jerusalem. And so what we find is that they're, they're talking with him, consulting with him, not about the means of his exit back to heaven, but what he was going to do for the whole earth in Jerusalem. And he's picking up that picture, Luke, and his use of the word exodus, and he could have used a different one, to basically remind people of Moses' great leadership of freeing God's people from slavery in Egypt, where they were under the tyrannical oppression of Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and Moses led them out of slavery out of oppression, out of being pressed down into their journey to, God, to freedom and being God's people released and settled in their promised land. And all of that, which was foreseen and foreshadowed in Moses' leadership there, all of the, the turning of the hearts of God's people foreshadowed in Elijah, all of that is now brought to bear in this real trumpet card of an exodus that Jesus is going to do in his cross and his resurrection and this is not going to simply be for the Jewish people of Israel the Hebrews but it's going to be for every single person here that the the stuff that infects our lives and prevents us from being who God made us to be that causes us to rebel against God and to go our own ways the slavery of sin and evil and darkness is going to be broken in the power of the cross and what is to be released after the cross 3 days later in Jesus's trumping exodus is the resurrection where eternal life is launched and Jesus is going to accomplish all of those things in Jerusalem. And Moses is like, the best that we, that we look back on and the best that was seen in the prophets is now all straining towards the actual thing which Jesus is going to do in Jerusalem. And what's so incredible is that there's different theories about does 1 Corinthians 15 mean that when we die, we basically go to sleep and then wake up at the end of time? Or are we with glory with Jesus even now straight away like Jesus says to the thief on the cross remember me because today you'll be with me in paradise well I don't know but Moses pops out of eternal life and Elijah pops out of eternal life and it's mad <laughs> and and what happens and this is instructive for us if we want to see God move powerfully is that Peter completely loses his head so Peter's not only seeing Jesus in all of his glory dazzling them with his splendor, he then sees the greatest law leader of the Old Testament in Moses, the greatest prophet in Elijah, and Peter says, hang on a minute, chaps, I'm just going to knit down to Mountain Warehouse in Horsham, and I'm just going to pick up three tents, because we better have a camp out, and you know, I need to get a kettle to do the morning brew and all this sort of stuff. And, and what I love is the humanity of this, because then Luke records not knowing what he said. <laughs> Did you get that? So, and, and, and we get that written down for us in Scripture. But just remember, for about the first 30, 40 years, they would just orally transmit this either at synagogue, teaching everybody, or they'd do it in their homes. So they'd gather around and they'd tell all the stories of God's people and all of that, and uh, you know, tell about Jesus, the first Christians, and all of that stuff. And can you imagine them telling about the Mount of Transfiguration? It's like, Jesus, oh, and all his glory, and Moses and Elijah, wow, pointed to the new Exodus. And then Peter, oh, he wants to build some tents, and they're all like, oh, you know, not knowing what he said. And they wrote it down for us. And, and it's so good because it makes us realize our humanity in the awesome nature of God's presence and God's grace, that he doesn't even quench or spoil the moment. But God just turns up the temperature and sends a cloud and it envelops them and they're terrified. And then God says, using language similar to Jesus' baptism, it's only the second time we see the appearance of the Father in the earthly realm. 
And God says, God the Father says, this is my son, the chosen, my beloved. Listen to him. And it's a weird story because they don't listen to him, do they? Because Jesus will go on to teach them about his resurrection, how the Son of Man must be betrayed. And Peter's constantly trying to persuade him out of that, isn't he? <laughs> you know, James and John, in just a few verses' time, are going to basically uh, have, uh, I don't know who's down to preach on the rotor, but I just love it. Uh, Jesus wants to go to Samaria, and James and John, here, they want to basically bazooka Samaria off the face of the earth. They just hate the Samaritans, call down fire and extinguish their village, launch some rockets into Samaria, you know, and Jesus has to rebuke. So they don't listen to Jesus is what I'm trying to say. So what's the point of this passage? What's the point of the transfiguration? And I just want to offer to you that it's found in the first words of verse 28. Now about eight days After these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up the mountain to pray. Eight days. Now the number eight in scripture is the number after the number for completion, which is number seven. That's God's number in the Bible. But the number eight is always about the new day, the new thing that God is doing, the the start of the new season. And what we get, so I I think what's going on is it's perhaps more than chronological, is that Luke wants us to get what's going on here in the transfiguration is a tiny glimpse of what's coming in the new age. It's the new thing that's going to be being done after Jesus' exodus, victory in Jerusalem for the whole human race. And what's the new thing? It's the manifestation of the glory of God. It's the manifestation of the the beauty and majesty of Jesus. It's the, the eclipsing of earthly things with the heavenly realm. And that begins, doesn't it? It begins, it's not here in full, but it begins after Pentecost when they're caught up and heaven interrupts and invades the earthly realm. And they're caught up in heavenly things. They're speaking in heavenly languages. And the church moves forth in the glory of God and just changes the face of civilization. So, who are we? If you're in this church, you've joined a community which has been really clear about what God's call is upon us, about who we are, certainly for about nine years. It began many years before that, but about nine years ago, we began to articulate God's call. And we've written it down, and it's in the form of our vision for 2033. And that vision describes a church full of God's glory, full of the presence of the Lord, Young, honoring old, the changing of hearts, miracles happening, the presence of God. But it talks about much more than a church being full of the glory of God. It talks about the whole atmosphere of the land being changed. It talks of halfway through, right in the heart of our vision, you know, we're we're seeing and beholding a future where God is reigning and in charge You know, right at the heart of the transfiguration, the father comes in a cloud and basically says, this is my son. Look at him. Listen to him. And right at the heart of our vision is the manifestation of God. It says all we can do is stand back and say, God is there. Not there was an awesome church. Not there were a bunch of decent leaders. Not that there were some godly people who gave their lives and sacrificed. It's like all we can do to stand back is say, God is there. God is in that place. And he's filling the skies. He's filling the atmosphere. This is a place where it's just clean and pure in the atmosphere. Where people are having God encounters. Even when they don't deserve it or don't merit it. This is the sort of place where his presence is so thick and strong. That people are just having their, their, uh, their spiritual eyes open. The scales in their eyes falling to the reality of God. And in that place where they're being exposed to the reality of God, then people are catching new callings. 
and they're starting to change their businesses, change their, their work, change their school, change their community. And then they're being sent from here, there and everywhere. And all these things describe a place where God is in charge. God is just glorious and reigning. And, 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 and what I love at the heart of the transfiguration is just the splendor and majesty of Jesus, which is totally overwhelming to Peter and his companions. It's just, it's like God pulls back the curtain just for a moment and they see Jesus as he always is in the heavenly realms, but they see him on earth as he is in the heavenly realms. You know, because when Jesus came into the earth, he laid aside his majesty, as that old song goes. Philippians 2, he emptied himself of his godlike qualities and became like one of us. But what happened is in the heavenly realms, his status, and when he left the earth and having rose from the dead and, and ascending on high, he was exalted and glorified and received back who he always is. Glorious, majestic, wonderful, dazzling. The one who causes us to lose our minds and, and just like, uh, Peter's like talking gobbledygook. He doesn't know what to do. He's overwhelmed. This is Jesus. And for a moment, it's like the earth's curtain is pulled back and they behold him. And what I want to say to us guys on the 10th of September, 10 years after starting, is that 2033, it was almost like God pulled back the curtain and showed us what's to come. And we've seen signs and tokens of his faithfulness, which we haven't deserved. You know, I think about some of the testimonies and miracles that we've seen. And it, it's just, it blows my mind. Because we're just trying to follow Jesus. We, we don't really know what to do most of the time. But God, God does. And we desire him to be here. And what I want to say today is that, God is, is wanting to point us back to his trajectory and to remind us of what he's doing at this time. And in verse 31, verse 32, sorry, Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep. And it's so interesting that the key moments Jesus has, the disciples just get so tired. Do you remember Gethsemane? Where Jesus is like, Guys, please back me up. Be my prayer cover. Be my prayer shield. Just, you know, like, cover me. Hold up my arms. Remember in the Old Testament, they held up Moses' arm? Do that for me. And he goes away to pray and they fall asleep. And he comes and wakes them up and he says, guys, don't fall asleep. Stay awake and pray. And they fall asleep again. You know, like, is this demonic? Is it because their frail bodies just can't contain the magnitude and the, the gravity of what's going on? We don't know. But what I want to say to us as a church, your hearts may be burning with passion, or you may be sleepy and apathetic, or you may even be tired and weary. But we have got to stay awake at this time. Because when they stayed awake, verse 32, they saw his glory. We've got to stay awake and to be alert and to respond to what God is saying. Who we are is to see God's glory in this place. Where are we? I just want to pull back. I can't see the clock, by the way. So just, yeah, great. We've got lots of time. Um, where are we? I just want to offer a few thoughts um, from where I've been this summer from the perspective of our nation, and then I want to finish by just sharpening that to Chanctonbury and what, we sense the Lord is saying at this time. Um, every summer, um, I always try and read something uh, like a, some sort of revival history. Um, I just want to jar myself out of like what is possible and normal for like a Church of England church in West Sussex. So um, a couple of years ago, I read the Hebridean revival and... Um, this summer, I've read a 400-pager um, written at the start of the 1800s on the history of the Great Awakening, which had a link with England because Whitfield was going back and forth. Um, but really, it was centered on the New England region of 
um, New York, Boston, the sort of community settled by some of the first Puritan pilgrims in the middle of the 18th century. And within a sort of seven or eight year period, something like 100,000 people were converted. No YouTube, no Instagram. 100,000 people were converted. And there weren't as many people there then. There was something like a, a quarter of a million residents in that region. And 100,000 of them were converted in seven or eight years. Churches were pioneered. They had to multiply. They were like splitting them in half, appointing new ministers, sending them to other parts of town. Uh, new England, even today, doesn't have revival meetings. It has lectures. And so their, their response to how God was moving was they'd go out for a midweek lecture and someone would open the Bible and preach to them. Um, and they still do that today. I was listening to a, um, a Presbyterian uh, podcast and he was referring even today to some of the lecture series that happen when they're like pushing into God. Um, it wasn't restricted to just the Presbyterians. It was the Methodists, the Baptists, the Congregationalists, a few of the Episcopalians which were sent by the Church of England. It was across the board and it wasn't orchestrated. There were a few... Key people at the centre, you'll have heard of Jonathan Edwards. Uh, you might have heard of someone called Gilbert Tennant. You'll have heard of George Whitfield. Um, and some of these guys were sort of became well known. But actually, as you read the history of it, there was just a change in the atmosphere. And what I began to do was write down some of the common traits that were going on in the build-up to that or were discerned in the very early stages of what was going on. Do you want to know what they are? Is this all right, everybody? Yeah. We're in like South American church style now, so is everyone okay? African church style, so just go swimming this afternoon. Go down to the sea, do whatever you need to do. I'm just going to keep going. They have four-hour church services, don't they? So let's do that. So, six common traits. Number one, the rediscovering of biblical truth. The rediscovery of biblical truth. Now, they had been sent, even though they were Presbyterian, Baptist, Methodist, Congregationalist, they'd been sent, many of them, from England. And even in those churches at the time, there was a prevailing idea that as long as you weren't committing scandal you were a converted person. Some of the infant baptism was even going on in the Presbyterian churches, and it was a way of uh, just marking that as long as people weren't being disruptive or scandalous, they were considered to be Christians. And suddenly, the church leaders were discovering how Jesus says, hang on a minute, if you want to enter the kingdom, you've got to be born again. And they suddenly dis began discovering, oh my goodness, people aren't actually converted. We've been inoculating them with our teaching against true conversion. And they began to discover biblical truth. They suddenly rediscovered these doctrines and it transformed who they were and transformed their churches. As I say, share these, make some connections with our day. If I was to summarize what's going on in Western Christianity, I would say there is an emergence of two branches of Christianity going on. One is person-centered, social justice-oriented, and climbing on the back of every society agenda. The other is, for those who are not getting sucked into that, the other is people who are rediscovering the truth of the scriptures and are willing to give their lives for it. We're facing into a time where up is called down and all the other way around. How can, how can we as a church... Uh, I need to not sorry, get hijacked by this. What I'm trying to say is, we as the church should be articulating what a human being is, what a man and a woman is, what it means to uh, know what to do with our sexuality, what it means to live well and in fullness of life before Jesus. This is what the church should be doing. 
and there's a rediscovery and a willingness to give our lives for this that's going on. And that was aligned with one of the traits going on uh, um, just before and in the early stage of the Great Awakening. Secondly, very similar to this, a zeal for purity and holiness. They withdrew and came away from the things of the world to give themselves to the Lord. They had such a vision of Jesus that they, were, they just desired to be like him. You know, if you read about Jonathan Edwards, you know, just seeing the excellency and the majesty, the beauty of the Lord Jesus, it won their hearts. And they just, in response, wanted to give themselves to him, to be like him, to be with him. And it manifested itself in a zeal for purity and for holiness. They were set apart and, and were willing to go against the grain. Now, they didn't withdraw from the world because they preached the gospel. But what they were, were realistic about is the inoculation and the contamination that systemic worldly culture tainted by sin could do if they weren't actively and proactively intentionally separating themselves to be God's people. Be holy because I am holy, says the Lord, in both Old Covenant and New Covenant. And this is one of the things they discovered. Number three and four, actually, the counterparts to that were that they saw that there was a great corruption in the culture of the world, and they, they called it and they named it. I was reading um, recently alongside this, um, just through Acts again, and I was so struck by, you know, the very first post-Holy Spirit sermon that Peter gives in Acts 2. Do you remember? Pentecost kicks off, everyone comes running, Peter preaches. This is the guy who's not been to rabbi school, how he should have, and just incredible sermon. And he, he challenges them, you've killed Jesus. And they're all cut to the heart and repent. And then it says, and he exhorted them with many words to save themselves from this corrupt generation. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And I think we've been too namby-pamby as the church because we've been desperate to try and bring people in that we've not called the corruption in culture for what it is. Now, I'm not talking about getting a loud hailer and placarding places, but what I am saying in our conversations and in our lives to be absolutely crystal clear that it's a corrosive, killing thing if you don't live with Jesus. It's just, it's ruining people's lives. It's ruining their identity. You know, we, we have tried to live by scientific, rational progress, particularly since the post-World War years for the last 70 years. Would you say that human beings are happier, better, kinder, more servant-hearted in, in 2023 than they were even 70 years ago? Even people who don't know Jesus would say that we've lost our neighborliness. We've lost our kindness in this day and age, haven't we? It's, the, it's, it's trying to do life without God at the center and it's not working. And it's corroding human beings and we need to save them out of it. And the fourth thing is they lost their appetite for worldly comforts. They began to seek God and withdraw from, from just worldly stuff. And I have to say... I'm not going to be a very good church leader if you want to be part of a church that does great Sunday services and, and then just lives your own life according to West Sussex values the rest of the time. Just, I, I just feel like, I don't know, I just haven't got any tolerance anymore just for, for wasting our lives, for climbing the ladder as we did. Let's pay off the mortgage and then play golf in our retirement. No. Like, we're the church. We're a bride, but we're meant to be an army sent out to proclaim the gospel. And yet we've just been like, like feeb enfeebled by not being clear about the poisonous, invisible water we've been drinking of like the culture that we find ourselves in. Now, I love the world. I love it because God loves it. And he's given us his love. And I know that like, without God, I'd be dead in a ditch. 
But that motivates us to be clear about what's going on and then to be sent by the Lord and to say, he, is, he loves you so much. Just know him. Come to know him. Do you know what I mean? And they lost their appetite for worldly comforts. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that in a moment. But let me just move on to the fifth thing. Is that they were desperate and hungry for more of God. They were desperate and hungry for more of God and his kingdom here. I don't know if you walked in here today for the very first time. But like 10 years ago we came and I thought I was passionate I just, I, 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 the great thing about being in the church for 10 years, I've run out of all my good ideas. <laughs> I ran out of those after about year two. You know, all your best sermons and all of that. We, we've run out of those. But in our weakness, his power can be made perfect. We have nothing if he doesn't begin to come more than we've ever seen before. More than we could ever imagine. I'm so hungry to see God move in our church, in our communities, and in this nation like never before. And there, there is an army rising up, and we'll talk about it in a minute. And that manifested, them, uh, that manifested in the sixth thing is that they devoted themselves to prayer and intercession. And they gave themselves. And they prayed not, please, Lord, do this. But they said, Lord, you have to do this. Because you promised this, you have to do this. Now, if you're in this church, I want to ask you a C.S. Lewis question about our vision. C.S. Lewis said about Christianity, and I'm going to put this to our vision now, either Jesus was insane, or he was a deceiver, or he was absolutely right. Now, I want to align that with our vision for 2033. Either it's completely a vain hope and it will never happen and it's insane, or I'm deceiving you, and the church leadership's deceiving you, and many people who've given their lives to it are deceiving you, or God has spoken to us. And what he's calling us now is to learn to pray, to say, you have given us a vision, Jesus. You had better affirm it. You better come in power. You promised it and we want to see it. And that's the sort of contending prayer that lays hold of what is being promised in heaven and says we are having it in the earth. There are people in our midst who are poorly with things they shouldn't be poorly with. We know how to deal with that. But is reaching into heaven saying, we're not satisfied with that. And we are going to see you manifest your glory in the bodies of our friends. Does this make sense? So those six things marked the beginning of the great awakening. Now, I want to just zoom out and think about our country for a moment. And this summer, Lou and I have had the privilege of going to a few different places and... Um, just talking to different people, and you may have come to the same conclusions as I come to, but I just want to talk, talk about it for a minute. We, we went to Ireland in July, and they asked us to talk about equipping people for kingdom stuff, but we were just, um, it was Lou who clocked it, we changed all our teaching, and we talked about the glory of Jesus and his searching in this time for a pure and holy bride. Now, what's amazing wasn't our talks, but the word landed. There was such a pure, honest, passionate hunger to be holy and to see the church ablaze with God's glory. That was in Ireland. We go to um, a conference called New Wine in England, and they were talking there about the call to consecration, to holiness, to seeking the Lord. All the things in the, in the build-up to the Great Awakening, the zeal for holiness, um, uh, we were, uh, um, stumbled into Davis Tent just locally uh, at the end of August. There was a key prophetic word released at Davis Tent that the Lord was saying, who will go for us? Who will go and proclaim the word of God in the UK at this time? The rediscovery of, <clears throat> the rediscovery of biblical truth. It's the same stuff going on. Um, uh, I could talk to you about other things. Um, my son went to uh, a student conference 
you could probably tell it better than me. Give them a break from me. Just, tell it, just give them two sentences about what was going on, came out of that newsletter, in, going on in our universities right now. People who've been working in student ministry on like a national picture for the last 30 years have been saying they've for years had stories of people saying, oh yeah, life was all right, but I always knew something was missing. And then my really nice Christian friend invited me on Alpha and now I've accepted Jesus. They said since January, they'd be having stories like someone having a tarot card reading and Jesus just appearing to you. Or Jesus, people stumbling into church and saying, I have nothing left. I need Jesus to save me. And they haven't heard that in like 30 years. It, and um, what I was going to say is, uh, you're telling me people are having dreams of Jesus. Yeah, it just... Uh, yeah, they said it's good. like stuff you hear in like, the Muslim world. Um, like, they said it's the sort of stuff you hear missionaries working in Muslim countries, of Jesus appearing in dreams of people. That's happening to students. And, yeah, all the Christian students, there's now... And like I've noticed this at Davis Ten, and like meeting students from other unis and stuff, it's something that's happening everywhere. So much more passion just to pray, and just all the stuff you're talking about. Isn't that amazing, guys? Isn't that just so exciting? You know, all those stories you hear of a Muslim having a dream of a man in white and gleaming, and and that's happening to UK students. That's incredible. So uh, what I'm trying to just say to you this morning, guys, it feels like there's a build-up coming. And it's the same build-up that was going on just before and in the, pre, in the early stages of the Great Awakening. And so that says to me, if there's a build-up going on similarly to how God has moved in times gone by... Of course, he's going to do something different. But if the same build-up is happening, the same themes are going out, the same call to the church to position itself, to be holy, to be praying, to be full of courage, to be set apart, all of the... If that same build-up's going on, then God is about to do something incredible. And I don't know if that's going to be this year or next year or in 10 years' time, but there's a build-up going on. And that says to me, it's not a matter of if God is going to do something, but it's when God is going to do something. And it's not restricted to even like one church or one denomination or one stream. It's, it's going on across all the denominations. Baptist, Vineyard, Independent, apart from the Divergence. And Jesus said, in the last days, there'll be many who will fall away. And that's why we've got to pray for those who've fallen away. Wake up, come alive. Wake up, wake up. Because it, you don't want it to be too late. But there's, a, there's just a, a, a refining and a sharpening and a hottening up of what's going on in the UK. And that's really exciting. So I, I just want to sort of say, what do we sense the Lord is saying? The Lord is saying we need to be lightning conductors for what's going on and positioning ourselves in the right manner at this time. We need to be lightning conductors. And at the heart of everything, in the Hebridean revival, it was two old ladies and some young farmers and all of that just crying out to the Lord. They were a lightning conductor and everything changed. There were you know, various people. This is what God is saying to us, lightning conductors, to position ourselves in the right way. John the Baptist was one in scripture. He prepared the way for the Lord. The 120 in the upper room, 10 days before Pentecost, they said, we've got to constantly pray. And then Pentecost, boom, and it all breaks out. Lightning conductors. And, and so um, just aligning that with our passage, I want to say, if any of us are sleepy, please wake up. If you're burning hot, we're going to be positioning ourselves in such a way as I'll describe in a moment. But what happens after the transfiguration? Jesus goes down the mountain and he delivers a demon that no one else can. And what's fascinating in Mark's version of this story is the disciples say, why couldn't we deliver that demon? And Jesus responds, that only comes out through prayer 
and some manuscripts add, and fasting. And what I want to say to you is there are some deep, demonic, evil things being unleashed in the nation right now. At the same time as the Spirit of God is saying, church, come up here. Church, come up the mountain. Church, come up the mountain. I want to show you my glory so you can release my glory. But it's because there are such foul things that there's no human strategy or human strength able to break them. But what Jesus says to his disciples is some stuff comes out through prayer and fasting. So I just want to say to us guys, um, thank you so much for being a wild enough church to listen to me shouting at you this morning. Um, But I just want to say thank you for fasting and praying back in June. We did 21 days and we did a vegetable diet, a Daniel fast for 21 days. But I just want to say to you now, looking at the next four or five months ahead, we're taking it up a level. We're taking it up a level, not simply because of the state of a few worldly things, but we're taking it up a level primarily to position ourselves as lightning conductors for more of God's glory in our church, in our communities, and in the nation at this time. And so what we've done is we've set aside one week in four in the next four months. All the details are on this, on your seat. One week in four... And we're going to fast and pray from Monday morning, 7 a.m. until Sunday lunchtime, 1 p.m. And we'll we'll finish church hungry, but filled with the glory, and then go and demolish something after a week's fasting. And I want to ask you, I'm not going to take a register, I'm not going to go around and ask you, I want to ask you to seriously consider withdrawing from food for those fasts. To withdraw from food. We did meat before and alcohol, but we're drawing from food. If you can't medically, please don't go under condemnation. That's not the point of it. But I'm asking you to step it up a level. And on those weeks, we're going to meet on Wednesday nights. And the second week that we have in November, at the culmination of that week, we're going to have a day of prayer and fasting here in our church on Saturday the 11th of November because it's two days before the General Synod of the Church of England meet on the 13th to the 15th of November. And we, with the blessing of our church wardens, we're inviting every church in Sussex to come and fast and pray for two things. A return to biblical faithfulness for the Church of England and a spiritual revival which we so desperately need. A return to biblical faithfulness and a spiritual revival, which we so desperately need. And I don't know if anyone will come. (laughs) We're going to invite everybody, both Anglicans and across the denominations, to come and pray. We're going to ask people to book in. It will be free, uh, but so we know. But the reason we're, we're calling you to fast and pray is not because we just love the Church of England so much, but because of the position the C of E has in the nation. It's got a reach into every community. It's got the most schools out there. We have a national presence. We have a presence in the House of Lords. We do the big royal bits when they come around, you know, once in a lifetime. And we need the church full of God's glory. Not quenching the spirit and moving into error and deception. And we are going to play our part to seek God for a turnaround. And that's what I'm calling you into. All right? Uh, I'm going to finish with this. If you um, read revival histories, they just describe it so brilliantly. And um, in the Hebridean revival, and I'm referring to that because it's on our shores, even though it's basically near Iceland, (laughs) 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 Um, but it's UK territory. And um, Duncan Campbell was the preacher. I mean, really, it was just like, it was just a church who were just passionate and hungry. And, um, but Duncan Campbell describes what it was like. He says, 
It was like God was everywhere. God was in the fields. God was in the dance halls. God was in the schools. God was with laborers. God was, with, God was at work. God was everywhere. And not only does that make me just yearn for life to be like that here. Um, we were, uh, I was just worshipping at, at David's tent. And um, why don't we just stand for a minute? Um, and uh, as I was worshipping, uh, the Lord just took me into just almost like I was helicoptering over just our land where we live, Chanctonbury Ring, our villages, our communities. And the whole thing was almost, you know where you watch a, a program um, I'm sure they do um, 24 hours in A&E. They put like a grey filter on it and it all just looks sombre. And, uh, and, and it was like that. And then suddenly, like the skies parted and suddenly everything just turned into technicolour but with a golden haze on it. And what happened is in the, in the vision, like the churches and it was us, we were labouring and we were winning some victories. Some people were getting saved. There was some good, you know, there's some good ministries being, being wrought. People were, people were serving God faithfully. But when it changed into Technicolor, it was like everything suddenly became fertile. It was then like, it wasn't just a handful of people getting saved. It was like 20s and 50s and 100s. It was like miracles were happening on every corner and every street. Everything became fertile because God was there. And and as I was having this vision, I felt the Lord say to me, this is what happens when I move. And I just want to finish with that, and I'm going to turn it over to Lou now, just to say, Lou needs to go. <laughs> it's just to say, guys, welcome back after the summer. We want to pursue Jesus for all that he has. And I'm just asking you, to pray with me for the glory of God and for what is in his heart to be made manifest in our day, in our churches, in our lives, in our families, in our communities for his glory. Amen.